A new regiment is formed to counter the threat from cyber attacks. Would-be adversaries, the curious, the hobbyists, and then right up towards the top end in terms of uh, right up to even state-based threats. President Trump threatens to send in the US military to end unrest. The Insurrection Act specifically allows the US Army to be used to put down an insurrection or a rebellion in the United States. And what leadership advice do you wish you'd had at 14? Don't sacrifice your soul for the sake of public approval, but actually find strength and comfort through your your family and your friends. I think, yeah, that's a pretty powerful message. I'm Kate Chabot, and this is SITREP. The last few years have seen an increase in the threat of cyber attacks from hostile forces designed to damage UK interests. Only last month, the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab warned that hostile actors were taking advantage of the COVID-19 pandemic to launch attacks. We know that cyber criminals uh, and other malicious groups are targeting individuals, businesses and other organisations by deploying COVID-19 related scams and phishing emails. Our teams have identified campaigns targeting healthcare bodies, pharmaceutical companies, research organisations and also various different arms of local government. Well, now the British Army has formed its first cyber regiment to protect defence networks at home and overseas from online attacks. The 13th Signals Regiment, which was disbanded in the 90s, will be reformed for the task. It will be based around headquarters at Blandford in Dorset. Brigadier John Collier, the commander of 1st Signal Brigade, says the cyber regiment will be made up from different specialist teams. The real magic there is bringing them all together, really getting after those specialists, brigading them together uh, and then building out from there. And that's what the launch of 13th Signal Regiment does from a strong start uh, and off we go forward, all to play for. So you're talking about bringing in specialists from three different areas. How hard are they to find and, and how, how good are they? Fair question, of course. I, well, to go to the second bit first, we have, we're, we're in a race. We all are. And I think, uh, I think you'd recognise that as well in terms of uh, recruiting, attracting, selecting and, uh, and really driving forward with some pretty good brains, some pretty good brains who are technically adept. Uh, they're what you, what you might call cyber match fit. They're imaginative, they're entrepreneurial uh, and have got that real draw towards being the best that they can be. So finding them from our existing portfolio they're out there and they're good we need more and we need to embellish them and support them and drive forward really to keep in that race uh, and keep at the leading edge of it so pulling them all together again that's as I described is really the next step which is what we've got after uh, this week and where are the threats coming from? If you couched it as anything, any problem that could undermine our ability to use our own systems competitively, anything that could get after the information on those systems, both the integrity of it, or indeed the relative confidentiality of it. So those threats can manifest themselves in so many different ways, right from um, even a normal user like you and I uh, could have an impact on those capabilities, wittingly or unwittingly. Uh, and then it climbs up a sort of sophistication ladder all the way through to would-be adversaries, the curious, 
the hobbyists, and then right up towards the top end in terms of uh, right up to even state-based threats that would demonstrably, actively try to do that kind of, or offer that kind of impact that I describe. So it's the full range. Uh, and what does this decision to create this regiment tell us about the way future warfare is being regarded? This has been in the offing and we've been uh, working really hard on the design and the creation and the formulation of this unit for some time, long before that and now I think more than ever, you'd probably recognise that the sophistication of our technologies, our communication technologies, our information systems, modernise at a really quite a startling pace. But underneath that, the complexity of pulling it all together grows and grows and grows. And at the same time, exactly as you've described, the threats grow and grow and grow. So all of that is a recognition that we can have difficult and challenging debate about what different types of military capabilities we should get after, what should, what should we invest in. But I think common to all of that, if you accept the premise of the information age, is that common to all, the sophistication of our capabilities, our systems and our ability to project them, deploy them and protect them grows ever great. Um, so I think that probably gives a clue in terms of the, the gravity and the opportunity that we place on this sort of information capability. Of course, there's a long history with the signals. You must be really happy to see the 13th being reformed. Hugely so. And, 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 and of course, massively appropriate that, um, uh, that this comes uh, right at the middle of the time when we uh, uh, celebrate and reflect on, uh, on the centenary of the Royal Signals as well within the Army, notwithstanding absolutely that 13 Signal Regiment comprises um, 14 or 15 different cap badges and indeed uh, Royal Navy and Air Force, but absolutely. And I think whilst the roles have evolved from our predecessors way back, way back to 1934, in fact, certainly some of the tenets of what uh, we pull through into 13 SIGs as we drive hard forward, technical excellence, as I say, uh, entrepreneurial spirit, imagination, uh, and a real profound unblinking eye, uh, on developing and deploying top-end capabilities is something we absolutely pull through with some pride from our forebearers, absolutely so. And how do you view this new chapter? I'm, well, I, 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 I'm excited. I would be. Uh, my, uh, uh, my title suggests I would, but absolutely not alone. Uh, and I think, again, the imperative that we place as an army and as defence and nationally and absolutely with allies uh, and with, uh, with partners in academia and industry is just so rich in risk and reward. Uh, and as I say, ours is to uh, absolutely at every time and in every way that we can and will uh, make sure that we maintain our competitive edge. And it all boils down to the people. It all boils down to uh, your earlier question about finding, uh, recruiting, supporting and giving the freedoms of, uh, of some seriously bright brains uh, to drive this capability forward. It's exciting times. That was Brigadier John Collier. Well, with me now is our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, interesting that this launch is going ahead despite COVID-19, a sign of the importance that's being placed on com combating this threat. The threat always goes ahead at the same time as a disaster like COVID-19. You look at the Brigadier, Brigadier John Collier. He's also the Assistant Chief of Staff Communications. He looks after the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps uh, element of signals. This man's got a big organisation. The most important part of it is that the United Kingdom has been ahead of the game of a lot of other countries on the whole thing of combating cyber threats. And it has been done for 
I don't know, eight years now, and it's been, a lot of money has been put into it. And this is just one part of it. And it ties in with people like GCHQ, other intelligence sources. Through the Rapid Reaction Corps, it ties in with other countries. It's not a small organization, this. This is European-wide, and it also ties in with what's going on in Australia and in New Zealand. Uh, and there's a section which will be listening and seeing what's been done, for example, by the Chinese. This is Sitrap. Well, the military have been widely praised for their work throughout the COVID-19 crisis, but questions are being asked now about the impact of the pandemic on government spending overall and on defence spending in particular. Many expect the crisis to lead to a substantial drop in the size of the economy and government income. And the situation for defence has been complicated by existing pressures. According to the National Audit Office, the MOD already has a financial black hole for its equipment programme of up to £13 billion. Charlie Pate, the MOD's Director General Finance, was asked by MPs on the Public Accounts Committee whether the department has already identified items to be deferred or cancelled this year. So I'm afraid we have had to take those kind of squeezing decisions. So reducing spend on infrastructure where we did not want to, reducing training exercises, and we have taken uh, decisions on specific capability, keeping support ships in extended readiness, that kind of thing, to live within the budget. I suspect we will have to come back to this as we did in 1920, as we see how the finances pan out over the coming months, not least with the impact of COVID. The MOD said in a statement that the government has committed to exceeding the NATO pledge to spend 2% of GDP on defence and to grow the budget by at least 0.5% above inflation every year. It pointed out that the budget grew by 2.6% in real terms last year and it said we will work with the Treasury to set future budgets at the next spending review. Well, Secretary of State Ben Wallace was asked about funding at the Defence Select Committee at the end of April. Uh, our own budget pre-COVID had a significant black hole that we were having to deal with. And that is uncomfortable. That meant despite getting a 2.6% real-term increase, uh, far higher than anybody else did in the last, uh, in the one year effectively spending review last year, it means that we still had to make some, uh, still have some decisions to make uh, uh, and some savings to find. That, of course, has slightly been skewed, I, should, you know, I would say, by this event. And he said it had raised questions about defence priorities in a post-COVID world. It does give us the opportunity to learn lessons from COVID about what it is that we need to let go of. Other things, has this resilience challenge taught us that we are investing in the right place or the wrong place. Well, Francis Chusa, the editor of the Defence Analysis Newsletter, gave evidence to the Defence Select Committee on procurement last month. I asked him what he thought would be the impact of COVID-19 on future defence plans and funding. There's obviously only one direction things are going to go. It's going to go down. Could it stay at the same level? It's just about possible, but I'm not hearing anyone who's sitting back saying, don't worry, they're going to keep it at uh, 41, 42 billion, we're safe. The pressure on the overall budget as a result of COVID is just so massive. Consider 400 billion of extra borrowing this year. The idea we will see any increase in defence spending at the moment is absolutely delusional. If you're looking to relaunch the economy and things like that, a lot of areas of defence are going to be hit. One area where the Ministry of Defence and the Services are going to potentially have to 
really rethink how they do business is procurement. And at the moment, the RAF especially loves buying American equipment. But how many British jobs does that create? The answer is the square root of zip. They have got to learn to start buying things from British companies, from British factories, employing British workers. And I think that's going to be a really serious ask. Mm. I mean, this is all against the backdrop of uh, the integrated review, and that's being postponed until next year, according to MOD officials. Does a delay prevent these big decisions being made? No, not at all. Decisions just have to be made. The economic issues are so massive, so damaging and so forth. The idea that for defence you will wait a year, 14 months to actually take decisions. This actually, if you look at it, goes completely against military practice. Military practice, you're meant to be able to take decisions dynamically. The situation changes, you change your force structure, you change where you're attacking. That's the type of situation we're in now. And this brings us back to the whole issue of procurement. And there's always been this talk of sacred cows and defence. Kit, perhaps officials want to get rid of but haven't or can't because of the contracts they're tied into. Do you think there will be bold decisions? I think there will be massive bold decisions because there is no alternative. The UK is not going to buy 138 F-35s. We haven't got the money. Will we look at getting rid of uh, heavy armour, artillery, stuff like that? Well, the costs of those largely are not in the budget, and they are ferocious costs. There are a whole load of areas where, yeah, we're going to have to take decisions such as were taken in 2010 when the carriers were retired and the maritime patrol aircraft capability was also binned. That's what we're looking at. Is there anything else you think that could be going that's vulnerable? Can the UK continue to operate three different types of transport aircraft, C-130, C-17 and A-400? We can't. It's it's not supportable in the long term. Can we keep on uh, operating three different types of support helicopter, Chinook, Puma and uh, Merlin? No, we can't. It's, It's just cost. So there are all these things which, quite frankly, should have been grasped three, four, five years ago which will be grasped now. If you're listening to the Defence Secretary, it's really time to think completely differently about defence. And he keeps talking about things like resilience. How, how is COVID and the recent experience changing the way people should think about the future of defence? Well, the fact that the military has played uh, over COVID, look at the Nightingale hospitals, such a key role. This arguably in the current political environment, short of the deterrent, is more important than anything the armed forces have been doing because it's brought the armed forces face-to-face with the public in a way they've probably not been for the past 15 years. And let me use another term which is deeply unfashionable, home defence. Home defence was always the unloved child back in the 80s, early 90s. The armed forces en masse need to rediscover their home defence edge And that is about the only area they are going to find funding easy. You were suggesting that in the current climate that decisions may have to be made very quickly, but do they not need time after all? Because the whole geopolitical landscape is changing so much as a result of the current pandemic, a US-China relationship deteriorating, Russia buzzing borders. I mean, how do you get the two right? How do you balance the, 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 the planning and the forethought with the need to make some quick changes because of the economy? The UK's influence in any potential conflict with China is as close to zeros makes no difference. Let us look close to home at the only existential threat to the UK as a country, Russia. They are on their economic knees. The price of oil has plummeted. 
their economy was anyway in trouble. Yeah, they will try and create a hassle. Their economy is going down the pan. And very difficult to say, just for the sake of argument, we need another eight frigates to deal with Russia. When the Russian threat, because their economy, is being reduced. Francis Chuser there. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is still here. Christopher, the Secretary of State Ben Wallace also told the committee it's not just about sums of money, it's about cultural change, our relationship with our allies. What Britain's ambitions are going to be? I presume you might agree with that. Well, it's going to have different ambitions. Uh, in five years' time, we probably won't see a white paper or a, or a statement that would be anything like the one that's aimed for next year. These things don't suddenly burst into a stream of violent confrontations. If you look at all the wars that are going on in the Middle East at the moment, they've all been going on for more than 10 years. So what you do, you react very slowly to conditions and allies and your own position. Mark said, well, the Cabinet Secretary, he's also the National Security Advisor to the Prime Minister and all Prime Ministers. If he can get through his idea, and that is that the British government and the next British government re-examines what they want to do in the world, and then they go along to the MOD and the Chiefs of Staff and say, right, that's what we want to do. Can you tell us what you'd want in military terms to guarantee that we can do that? It does two things. One, it will get you a better armed forces. It'll get you quite a different armed forces that we've got now, and it has nothing to do with the MOD saying this is how we're going to protect our 2%. The future of the armed forces has nothing to do with the chiefs of staff. It has nothing to do with the defence ministry, politically or militarily. Right, Christopher, stay with us. What are y'all doing? Y'all doing nothing, because that's not going to bring my brother back at all. It's fighting for humanity. And we're asking everyone all over the world to stand with us and fight with us. I don't want us to be looked at as rioters or looters. We're protesting passionately. I'm just tired of hearing about black people dying. I'm tired of being afraid. Our message is still the same. Black Lives Matter. The sounds of a tumultuous week in the United States, the protests that followed the killing in Minneapolis of George Floyd have triggered a political crisis after Donald Trump threatened to deploy the military to clear the streets. But in the state at the center of the storm, one National Guardsman told crowds he wanted to stand with them. I'm sorry for your loss as a citizen of Minnesota. I'm sorry for the loss of George Floyd. All right, my heart hurts as a human being. Last night when I talked to the group out here who peacefully assembled, one of the things that the crowd asked for last night was to have the officers in the army removed, right? So we're off. We heard it and we're gonna stay back behind invisible so that you can't see us. Is that okay? Well, the US president has told state governors to get tough and warned them he'll take over if they don't act. Soldiers from the 82nd Airborne Division have been sent to a base near Washington on standby. Simon Marks from Feature Story News in Washington, D.C. has been monitoring developments. He told Paul Osborne how Donald Trump could choose to intervene. Every state has a National Guard. When you're in the National Guard, that doesn't make you a member of the US Army. The US Army comes under the control of the Department of Defense. The President of the United States can request one state to send National Guardsmen to another state, and it's at the uh, discretion of the governor uh, of the state that's being asked to provide manpower to determine whether he's going to do it. When Donald Trump says, if necessary, he'll use the military on the street, He's talking about 
the army. Uh, and he's talking about invoking something called the Insurrection Act from the late 1890s, which allows the US Army, which of course exists to fight wars overseas, doesn't exist to fight wars here at home, but the Insurrection Act specifically allows the US Army to be used to put down an insurrection or a rebellion in the United States. So when Donald Trump calls these protesters anarchists and radical leftists, that's not by accident. That's partly by design, because there would then be a legal justification for using the Insurrection Act to put members of the army on the streets all over the country. There are no guarantees for the president that if he gives orders to members of the US army to shoot protesters on the streets of an American city, that those orders will necessarily be either transmitted to the troops or carried out. While Donald Trump may well think that that is a way of projecting strength in an election year, many nations would be incredibly nervous about the signal that would send to the rest of the world about sending your own troops onto the streets of your own cities and that it is the only way that you can keep order. Donald Trump is a huge admirer of authoritarian leaders around the world. Donald Trump believes, as he told the governors of America's 50 states in that very contentious phone call, that they need to dominate the streets. They need to restore peace and tranquility to the streets of their cities. And by that, he doesn't simply mean create a peaceful opening so that non-violent protests can continue to take place. He means clear the streets of people that he has described as lowlifes and losers. And he doesn't seem particularly concerned about those people internationally who say, you are threatening America's global reputation, you are trashing America's constitutional guarantees. This is a constitutional battle now. Does the Constitution hold? Do the checks and balances prove to be strong enough? I mean, I think that's clearly where we are now. Around the same time that Donald Trump was speaking on Monday, the most senior enlisted airmen in the U.S. Air Force, one of the most senior black military leaders in the U.S., uh, spoke about his fears that one day it'll be a, a black member of the military that could meet the same fate as George Floyd. This is the chief master sergeant of the Air Force, Kaleth Wright, who wrote a whole series of tweets saying, I am George Floyd. He said that his greatest fear is not that he might one day be killed by a white police officer, but that he will wake up to a report that one of the Air Force's black airmen has died at the hands of a white police officer. And that, of course, is absolutely perfectly possible. When you see some of the exchanges that have taken place on the streets between uh, police and African-Americans in various parts of the country, and it fuels the concerns uh, of this senior member of the Air Force that one day he may find one of his service personnel uh, becomes the next George Floyd. That was Simon Marks. Two, one, zero. Ignition. Liftoff of the Falcon 9 and Crew Dragon. Go NASA. Go SpaceX. Godspeed. Bottom dog. 
A crucial part of the military monitoring of the SpaceX launch that finally went ahead at the weekend was carried out at RAF Filingdales on the North York Moors. It's a ballistic missile early warning site that detects objects with a trajectory that might threaten the UK and its allies. Flight Lieutenant Ryan Holden is a crew commander. So it's a hugely important moment for the crew around duty and it went really well. I'm sure many of you followed the live streams that were on the internet, so our crew's got to see that live and coming through the radar as it went. Yeah, I'm sure it was very exciting for everyone working there. I understand Filingdales can look 3,000 miles into space. What kind of things can you track and how big do they have to be to show up on your screens? So we'll see anything that reflects the radar. Uh, so we're sending energy up there and as long as it bounces it back to us, we should be able to see it. Normally we tell everyone that we can see everything about the size of a can of Coke. That seems to be the smaller sort of objects that we've tracked currently. And how many objects do you track at any one time and why is it so important? Uh, so the radar's capable of seeing hundreds of objects at any one time and it's smart enough to figure out what we want to see and when. And what happens to the information that you've collected about SpaceX, uh, the manned spaceflight launch that you've now collected? So we'll send that information both to our higher authorities, which is 18 Space over in the US and the UK Spock down at High Wycombe and they can build that into their catalogues. So what happens next? So this is Demo 2 mission. So it's not over yet. So we don't know exactly how long the astronauts are going to stay up at the space station, but the mission was not complete until they returned home safely. Once that has happened, we'll hopefully see that vehicle certified for crew launches in future, and we'll be tracking more and more of them as we go along. Yeah, and hopefully you'll get a chance to do so yourself next time. Flight Lieutenant Ryan Holden, good to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, the art of leadership has been the subject of many books, but now there's a new contribution to the genre gathered by a former foreign policy aide at Downing Street who asked the leaders who came through that famous black door what life advice would they give his son for when he turned 14 in 2020. Well, Tom Fletcher is the former aide and ambassador to Lebanon who collected this advice for his young son, Charlie. I asked him how it started. I used to have this... Uh incredible job working for uh, Tony Blair, then Gordon Brown, then David Cameron as the foreign policy guy, basically. He was with them all the time. I realized I was coming into contact with all these extraordinary people. Uh, and at the time, I was away from my son and my wife a lot. And I thought, well, is there any way that I can capture some of this experience so that when he's old enough to understand it, there's some kind of record of it? Uh, and that's where it all began. And the first person I went to to, to write, and it was actually J.K. Rowling, and I think actually when she'd, once she'd done it, then all the world leaders and everyone else wanted to be in the same book as her. <laughs> so, so what was the general response from leaders when you actually went up to them and asked them? They were universally supportive, actually. I can't think of anyone who was difficult. Many of them would take real time over it. Bill Clinton wrote his out in draft very, very carefully, meticulously, and then copied it in. George Bush took the book away uh, and it was gone for about a month. I thought I'd never get it back. You know, Mikhail Gorbachev wrote two pages very, very carefully and thoughtfully and even had a tear in his eye when he was writing it. They're amazing, really. Can you give us any examples of the quotes? J.K. Rowling said you should read a lot, you should never smoke, do as your dad tells you unless he's in the wrong. All good advice there. Bill Clinton here says, Charlie Lynn, as much as you can, get to know different kinds of people. Don't be afraid to dream big dreams. Don't forget to enjoy every day and... Be grateful for your family and friends and be generous uh, in giving. And this was quite moving from Gorbachev here. He says, um, dear Charlie, by the time you read this, I may no longer be around, uh, but I wish you a successful, joyful life 
the success you take will ultimately be equal to what you put in. My best wishes for a life that makes a difference. And then you've got all sorts of others, you know, from Barack Obama to, you've got Pele and David Beckham and Steve Redgrave, the rower. I had it at the time of the the Beijing Olympics. And so I got all the Olympians to sign in it uh, as well. So you haven't given it to him yet then? I haven't, but I have to confess that he has seen it now. We then had a complete disaster because a year and a half ago, I lost it somehow. I mean, it's important. Barack Obama had said, you know, your son will be either very rich or very clever, depending on whether he sells this or, or reads it. And I was terrified that within a year of, you know, his birthday and this amazing moment of giving it to him, that it was lost. Eventually, uh, last week, it turned up again, uh, to my huge relief. So when Charlie gets the book, is there anything in particular, any particular bits you really want him to take away from it? I mean, I think the persistent theme is, you know, it's not necessarily a surprising one, but it's about dreaming big dreams, but then actually going out, as Obama says in here, going out and then actually making them uh, happen. And then there's a lot about, you know, not sacrificing your your values just for public approval, which is quite interesting coming from these kinds of, of leaders and politicians. You know, it's W. Bush who says, um, don't sacrifice your soul for the sake of public approval, but actually find strength and comfort through your, your family and your friends. I think, yeah, that's a pretty powerful message. And then Above all, you know, that his, his great-grandfather, who's no longer with us, uh, one of the last things he did was to write uh, in the book. And he left him a message saying, be kind and curious and brave. Uh, and I think that's a pretty good message for all of us, really. That was Tom Fletcher. Uh, Christopher, what's the best military leadership advice you've heard? 1805, Nelson. First, obey orders without attempting to form any opinions of your own. And then secondly, consider every man your enemy who speaks ill of your king. And then thirdly, wait for it, you must hate all Frenchmen as you hate the devil. (sighs) And guess what? (laughs) Shortly after that, he went into the Battle of Trafalgar against the French and the Spanish, and they killed him. On that note, we'll finish for this week. Thank you, Christopher, and to all of this week's guests. <laughs> Don't forget, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP, and at bfbs.com slash SITREP, you can listen back to past episodes and subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>